was just thinking uh, during the week, I uh, read a survey and it said uh, uh, in the survey, pa- um, pastors were asked, uh, which book of the Bible uh, would you most like to preach? And uh, congregations were asked, uh, which book of the Bible would you most like to hear your pastor preach on? Uh, and, the, and the results were pretty overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly, uh, congregations said they wanted to hear their pastor preach on Revelation. And overwhelmingly, uh, pastors said the one book they did not want to preach on was Revelation, uh, particularly uh, from chapter 4 onwards. Uh, So if you found uh, what was just read uh, to be a bit confusing and intimidating, uh, join the club. Uh, uh, But uh, let's, uh, yeah, please pray with me and for me. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we... uh, We know that you speak to us uh, because you want us to know you and to be clearer on your plans and purposes in this, your world, and for our lives. And so we pray that uh, you would watch over us this day. Help me to be faithful and clear and by the power of your spirit to, I guess, open up the truths of this word. And I pray uh, for our hearts and minds that we'd be open to receive the truth of your word and respond to it rightly. Uh, For Jesus' glory. Amen. Uh, so before we get into the details of that passage, Revelation 4, uh, I, we've got to really take some time to orient ourselves to the whole book of Revelation. Uh, I covered some of this last year. We looked at chapters 1 to 3, uh, the, the letters to the seven churches. Uh, but I don't assume that all of you have uh, been swatting up on my sermons from last year, or perhaps you haven't memorized my sermons from last year. Uh, so I think maybe a recap is helpful. Uh, so uh, if you've got a Bible, actually, uh, it'd be good to flick back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It'd be good to have those verses open in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's some uh, on the back table if you want to grab one. But Revelation 4, verses 1 to 4, you can see in the outline that there are four, I guess, orientation questions that I I want to answer, mainly from these verses. So the first question is, uh, what genre is the book of Revelation? Uh, We have to ask that because uh, lots of us don't know. Like The Bible's kind of one book, uh, but it's full of lots of different genres. Right? There's uh, history and prophecy and uh, poetry and apocalyptic and biographies and parables, all sorts of genres. Uh, so when we're reading a particular part of the Bible, we have to ask, what, what genre is this? Uh, because the genre actually influences how we interpret that part of the book. Uh, just like when you read the newspaper, some of you might have heard this illustration, uh, you actually read the comics a bit differently to how you read the opinion pieces, or how you read the letters to the editor, or the weather report, or the news article, or or the classifieds, the stock market report, right? You read all of those things slightly differently because of the genre that you're reading, right? You recognise intuitively that uh, how you interpret that genre ought to be different. You expect a certain amount of precision from the stock market numbers that you don't expect from the emotional letter to the editor, right? So what genre it is influences how you interpret it. What genre is revelation? Uh, Well, have a look. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 1, unsurprisingly, John says, Revelation's a revelation. There you go. It's there, right there in verse 1. The word revelation, right, that's that's the word apocalypse in Greek. It it has the idea of unveiling something, pulling back the curtain. That's the idea. Uh, So in Revelation, what we expect to see is the curtain being pulled back between this physical realm and the spiritual realm, uh, giving us kind of insights into what's really going on behind the scenes. So Revelation's an apocalypse, and one of the key characteristics of uh, apocalyptic literature uh, is that it's full of symbolism. Paul uh, alluded to that, and and you just heard some of it in Revelation 4. Uh, And actually, the whole book of Revelation is structured around seven visions, uh, seven symbolic visions. Uh, If we can flick up that slide, 
there's some debate about exactly where the divides between these sections are, but you can see there's uh, seven symbolic visions, uh, many of them uh, in multiples of seven, you know, seven churches, we had that last year, uh, seven seals, seven trumpets. Uh, then we've got this kind of, the heart of the book is this pulling back the curtain on this deep spiritual battle that's going on, seven bowls and so on, seven uh, symbolic visions. So, that, uh, so we looked at uh, chapters one to three last year, the first vision, uh, and this year we're looking at the next six visions uh, listed up there. Uh, but why, why does all this matter? Uh, well, it matters because it means that our, uh, I guess our default position when we're reading Revelation, when we're interpreting Revelation, uh, is to interpret it symbolically, not literally. Uh, that, that's important. But I don't mean that the reality behind the symbols doesn't literally exist. It does. Uh, I don't mean that the truths behind the symbols aren't literally true. They are. I just mean first, two things, right? First, that that how John sees things in Revelation isn't necessarily literal. In the sense, for example, today, John sees God sitting on a throne. Does that mean that God literally sits on a physical throne in heaven? No, it doesn't. God's spirit, he doesn't sit on the throne, right? It's a picture of God's sovereignty and authority and power. We're not to take these images literally, Likewise, because they're symbolic visions, uh, we shouldn't get too caught up with connecting the visions to uh, particular uh, people or events. They're symbols. They're supposed to show us the kind of things that are going to happen over and over again in different cycles between Christ's first and second coming. So it's not a a chronological timeline, if you like. It's more like a, a series of cycles from different perspectives. Now, that's what we're dealing with. You saw the cycles. Uh, you can see them up here. Different cycles, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the, right? They're going through different cycles. Oh, we can take that structure down now. Right, so that's the first thing. Revelation is an apocalypse. That means it's full of symbolism, uh, and that, that in influences how we interpret it. Uh, the second thing there in Revelation, uh, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, you see that Revelation's a prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this Prophecy, John says. And now, like all prophets, uh, some of John's words predict the future. Uh, but as I've already said, not all his words, in fact, not if you t- kind of look at all the sections of the book, not many of his words are about the far distant future. You know, often we think Revelation, oh, that, that's about the very end of the world. Uh, but that, that's not the case. Right? Most of what John has to say is about how God's people should live now. How we should live uh, in this whole age between Christ's first and second coming. That's the bulk of what John has to say. Uh, Which leads to my second question you can see on your outline. uh, Because in saying that, I'm I'm sort of putting my cards on the table uh, for how I'm going to be interpreting Revelation. Uh, There are actually four main ways in which people interpret Revelation. Uh, I'm not going to go through all those uh, now. Uh, You can see uh, Paul mentioned uh, there's some notes on the back table. The front side has uh, a bit of an explanation of the four main ways in which people uh, interpret Revelation. And the back has some information about why I think uh, we should interpret Revelation symbolically. So you can have a look at that, uh, I recommend. Uh, But anyway... uh, I just wanted to tell you now how I interpret it. Uh, it's under what uh, is on, listed on here as the idealist view. Uh, I think it, it really gives the best sense of the whole book. Right, so under this view, uh, there's this series of visions, and God gives these visions to John uh, to pull back the curtain on the ongoing struggle, the battle between uh, the forces of God and his people and the forces of Satan and his people. 
There's this spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. Uh, And as I said, the visions aren't supposed to be identified with particular people or events. Revelation's a picture book. A complicated picture book, a confusing picture book, sometimes a freaky picture book, like you wouldn't necessarily draw it and read it with your kids, right? But it's a picture book. Right? Pictures of things that are going to happen uh, over and over again in cycles between Christ's first and second coming. So that's how I'm going to be interpreting it. Right? Revelation uh, is not exclusively in the past, as some people say. It's not exclusively in the future. Uh, It's about this whole age between Christ's first and second coming. Uh, And one of the key reasons why I interpret that way uh, is relevant for uh, question three there, which is who is Revelation written for? And I'm convinced that Revelation was written to be immediately relevant for all Christians, not just Christians in the future or in the past, but all Christians. Have a look here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Revelation is primarily written for the seven churches in the province of Asia. Right, that's modern-day Western Turkey. Uh, but we saw last year it's a bit broader than that, right? because those seven churches aren't all the churches in the province of Asia. There's a whole bunch of other churches. Uh, so John, uh, so this vision is given to these seven churches. They're, they're like representative churches. Right? In Jewish tradition, uh, the number seven symbolizes completeness. You know, think seven days in the week. It, it's completeness. Right, So these seven churches represent the, the completeness of God's church in all times and all places. That's the point. So in uh, Revelation 1, verse 1, John says, uh, God gave him this revelation to show all his servants. Right, that's every Christian throughout history. Right, to show all his servants what must take place before Christ returns. So Revelation is immediately relevant for all Christians living in all times and all places. Not just people living in some, you know, just very close to the end of the world. And it was written to bless you. Right? If you're a Christian, Revelation was written for you and it was written to bless you. In verse 3, John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. So that's what I'm praying is going to happen over the next few months uh, as we work through the book of Revelation. Uh, It's going to be hard work at times, but I'm hoping that we're actually going to be blessed through that hard work. That's God's intention for this book, uh, that we would be blessed as we take uh, John's words to heart. So I'm actually going to pray again before we look at Revelation chapter 4. In light of all that, it provides a bit more context for our prayers, I think. Now let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, do confess that when we come to the book of Revelation... Uh, that there's uh, perhaps a mixture of uh, intrigue and uh, excitement uh, because uh, perhaps we don't really understand it very well and we've always wondered what it means. Uh, But that's mixed with confusion and being intimidated and and just, yeah, uh, thinking, oh, it's just all too hard, perhaps. Uh, Please, Lord, help us to understand this, your word, not just today, but in the coming weeks and months. And we pray that it would indeed be a blessing to us as we take John's words to heart. Uh, For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, It'd be good to have Revelation 4 open now, if you don't already. Uh, It's actually, I reckon it's pretty commonly accepted uh, that it's it's only when people are under real pressure uh, that you see what they're really like. 
right? That they show their true colours, you know, when they're under the pump, so to speak. Uh, particularly when people are under pressure, uh, you see who they think is in control. Uh, you see who they think uh, sits on the throne, if you like. Uh, you see who they think has the power to rule and influence and change things. Who can make a difference? And in the end, you see who they really worship. For example, when I'm under pressure, I'm ashamed to say that my first move is almost always to look to myself. I work harder, I plan more, I strategize more, I do everything in my power to try and sort things out, to try and fix things, to get things under control, to, to manage things. Eventually I turn to God. Now what does that tell you about who I think is in control? Who I think sits on the throne, as it were? Well, it tells you that often I see myself as being in control, that I'm on the throne, that the world revolves around me. It depends on me. It's about me and my strength and my plans and my desires. In fact, the world would be a much better place if everyone would just bow their knee before me and do what I say and and, and what I want, whenever I want it, right? Right? That's what happens when we're under pressure. It reveals who we really think is in control, who's on the throne, who we worship. The people John's writing to are under massive pressure. They're living in around 90 AD under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And Domitian expected everyone under his rule, without exception, to go each week down to the local temple, bow before a statue of him and declare that he was Lord and God. And that created a whole bunch of pressure for these Christians, right? They believed not that Domitian was Lord and God or anyone else, but that their God was Lord and God. So what do they do? They're under real pressure. So in Revelation 4, John reminds these Christians of who is the Lord and God. That's the point. He lifts their eyes to see that God is on his throne and they should worship him, not some emperor or anyone else. Have a look in verse 1. John uh, shows us what I've called there the the inevitability of worship. Uh, That'll become clear, I think, as we look at it. Uh, He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. So after John sees the vision uh, in chapters 1 to 3 about the seven churches, uh, he looks, uh, he's, he's having another vision. And there before him is a door open into heaven. Uh, It's like the curtain's been pulled back between this world and the spiritual world. uh, And John hears someone calling him. Who is it? He says it's the voice that he first heard. A voice like a trumpet. Now, if you flick back to chapter 1, verse 10, uh, John says this. He says, uh, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And if you read the verses following that, you'll see that he describes his, his massive vision of Christ. Right, so here, once again, John's in the spirit, classic language of a, of a prophet, right, about to receive a, a, revision, a vision, not a revision, a vision. Right, he's in the spirit, about to see, uh, receive a vision, uh, and he hears the voice of Christ calling him into heaven right, to give him a glimpse uh, of what is actually right at the heart of reality. What is it that's at the heart of our universe, the heart of reality? What John sees is worship. At the centre of our universe, he he sees God sitting on his throne, ruling over his world, and he's surrounded by worshippers. Worship is at the very heart of of reality, the heart of our universe. It's what makes the world go go round. God made every single one of us to worship him. It's built into our DNA 
as human beings. It's a part of our default operating system. There's no way around it. The American novelist uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, who wasn't a Christian at all, uh, but observed, uh, this is a kind of weird but true observation. He says, here's something weird but true. Uh, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism uh, because there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Worship is inevitable. Why? Because God made us to love and delight and adore. He made us to worship. The only question is who or what will we worship? Worship is inevitable. God made us to worship him. So who are we going to worship? Look in verses 2 and 3. I think what we see there is that the only right object of our worship is this God who sits on his throne. Have a look, verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So so John, uh, imagine he's he's caught up in the spirit. Uh, He enters into heaven and he sees someone sitting on a throne. Uh, If you want to, you can chase up visions in the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel uh, sees a great vision of of God sitting on his throne. Uh, But notice here that, that John can't describe the one sitting on the throne. The best he can do is say he's got the appearance of jasper, of ruby, of emerald. You can say the experience for John is so powerful, he's just clutching at straws. He's trying to find words to describe the indescribable God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 says, God, the, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Here in this vision, John gets a glimpse of that glorious God, the one who lives in unapproachable light, and the best he can do is describe how the light of that glory shines around like these precious gems. A jasper, it's not a stone we talk about much these days, it's probably a bit like an opal. Ruby, that's sparkling red, obviously. Emerald, shimmering green. The light of God's glory, John is saying, it kind of radiates around as if it's shining off these gems, right? And I say as if, because remember, it's not like God literally has a throne or a crown with gems on it. He doesn't. John is trying to capture the incredible glory of God, this glory that's indescribable. He's trying to put it into words. How do you do that? How do you describe a God who's more awesome than even the most powerful forces of nature? Like what words do you put to it? Later on, he's going to talk about thunder, but even that, it's just, it's inadequate. How do you describe a God who's more, uh, who's uh, more beautiful than even the most radiant bride you've ever seen on their wedding day? How do you describe a God who's more glorious than, than the shining of the sun or, or, or the twinkling of the stars at night? You can't describe a God like that. So John just does his best, right? He just does his best. It's clear that this God who sits on his throne at the centre of the universe, the curtain's been pulled back. It's clear that this God is the only one who's worthy of of our worship. Which leads to my third point, that the scope of worship. Have a look in verse 4. John says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on these thrones were 24 elders. 
They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now we said about symbolism. Uh, lots of people uh, think these 24 elders symbolise the church, right? The whole church, right? So you've got, uh, you might remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. Uh, so people look at this number 24 and they say, well, here it is. This is, this is the church. These elders represent the church. But I don't think that's right. Either these 24 elders are, are powerful angels. Right? They're, they're like the people around God's throne. You have to go through these angels to get access into God's presence, in a sense. Uh, so these angels and their main role is to help and represent God's people. Oh, well, we know that first uh, because the letters in chapters 1 to 3, if you want to read them again, uh, those letters were addressed to the angels of the seven churches. Right? The angels are, are representatives of those churches. Uh, also in Revelation 5, verse 5, we'll look at this next week, but, but one of these elders helps John uh, to kind of interpret what's going on. This is really common in apocalyptic. You often have an angel turn up and go, oh, you're confused? Let me fill in the gaps for you. But that's what happens in Revelation 5. One of the elders, uh, John's weeping, he's confused, uh, and one of these elders says, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Right, he's helping John out. Right, in Revelation 5, verse 8, uh, the elders are portrayed as presenting to God the prayers of God's people. Right, so the 24 elders fall down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, uh, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And really the clincher, I think, is Revelation chapter 7. Uh, there's another vision in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 11. Uh, and in that vision, uh, there's a great uh, multitude around God's throne, uh, and then it's clear that there's uh, there's uh, sorry there's a full kind of great multitude, uh, and John lists kind of concentric circles. So you've got the church, uh, Christians, you've got angels, and then you've got these elders, right? A separate category, right? These elders are not the church; they're powerful angels whose role it is to help and represent God's people. And there's other verses in Revelation 14 if you want to chase that up. Right, but notice what the angels, are, uh, what, what these elders are doing. Have a look in verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. They lay their crowns at his feet. Right, these angels are some of God's most powerful created beings. That's what the crown's all about, right? They're glorious, they're powerful. And yet they fall down before God and worship him. They, 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 in, in God's presence, they have to humble themselves. They can't gallivant around with their crowns, right? They've got to throw them at God's feet. How dare they wear a crown in the presence of this king? Right? That's the 24 elders worshipping God. Uh, what about the four living creatures? Uh, they, these are like the highest order of angels, I think. The angels immediately around God's throne. If you can imagine a, a king uh, sitting on his throne and you've got the kind of the one at the right hand and the left and kind of the, those closest to the king uh, are those, uh, I guess, in the inner sanctum. That's what these angels are like. This takes us back, this uh, John's vision here, to Isaiah chapter 6. You can read that later on. But you know, Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne as well uh, and he sees him surrounded by these angels who also have six wings. Right? Isaiah says they use two wings to cover their face, right? because even they can't look directly at God's glory. They use two wings uh, to cover their feet, which is kind of a symbol of being uh, humble in God's presence. And they use two to fly around, because right? it's their job to execute uh, God's judgments. 
So what about these four living creatures in Revelation 4? They, they really symbolise two things. Two things. The first is they symbolise what God's kingdom is like, the nature of God's throne. So the lion, the king of the beasts, that tells us that God's throne is supreme. God's throne is sovereign above everyone. The ox is a symbol of endurance, right? That tells us that God's throne is eternal. The creation, the creature with a face like a man, believe it or not, it's hard pressed when you meet some people, but believe it or not, it's a symbol of intelligence, right? Intelligence, it tells us that God's throne is not haphazard or chaotic. It's, it's ordered, it's rational, it's planned. Are the eagles a symbol of God's protection? Exodus 19, verse 4, God says to his people, oh, you've seen how I carried you on eagles' wings. And then there's those eyes, right? They're a bit freaky. Sort of eyes all over these creatures. Like, that's what I said, it's a crazy picture book. Right, but the point is that, that it's a symbol of God's complete knowledge. God's sitting on his throne and nothing happens outside of his sight. Therefore, nothing's outside of his control. He's got eyes everywhere, if you like, through these four living creatures. So these creatures symbolise the nature of God's throne. And second, they symbolise the fact that all of creation is worshipping God. Like the lion, the king of the wild animals, the ox, the king of kind of domesticated animals, if you like, the eagle, the king of the skies, the, the human. Remember Genesis 1? God appointed human beings to, to rule over creation under his rule. The point is that all of creation is worshipping God. That's how things should be. Right? That, that's the proper scope of worship. Everyone giving glory to this God. Uh, but why are they worshipping God? Why should we worship God? Uh, well, first, because he's eternal. Uh, some of the kids up here earlier also thought they may have been eternal, but, uh, you know, but God is, is eternal, right? Verse 8, have a look at verse 8. The four living creatures praise God because he is the one who was and is and is to come. There was a point where nothing else existed and there was just God, Father, Son and Spirit, the God who has no beginning or end. You and I will come and go, even the most powerful kings and prime ministers and presidents and rulers, all of them will come and go in the scheme of eternity here, one day, gone the next. As James says, you're like a mist and then you're gone. Right? God will outlast us all. He's eternal. He was here before us. He'll be here after us. Well, maybe if you're a Christian, you'll be with him forever. But, right? He's eternal. And as the eternal God, he's the creator of all things. Right? Verse 11 says he's worthy to receive glory and honour and power for, right, because he created all things. All things. Right? Everything you can see or hear or taste or touch or smell was created by this God. Nothing exists outside of the, the sovereign command of this God. He created everything. There was nothing, just him, Father, Son and Spirit, and then he created all things. And he not only created all things, he sustains all things. Verse 11, by his will they exist and have their being. God sustains everything in the universe, moment by moment. You think about that. Every, every single breath that you take is a gift from God. 
He could choose at any moment not to give you your next breath. Every heart, every time your heart beats, it's a gift from God. He sustains. It's in him that we have our being. He rules over all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. And because of that, he's sovereign over all things. Uh, Revelation 4 and 5 are kind of meant to, they're kind of a, a unit uh, that go together. And if you read the two chapters, uh, you'll see that the word throne occurs 17 times. That's a job for later on. Like, go and see, highlight as many thrones as you can. Right? John's point is that there might be other rules or thrones or powers there are, but this God is supreme. Right? It's this God who rules over all of them. It's his plans and purposes that will prevail. You've seen the Psalms. I can't remember what Psalm it is. I think it's Psalm 115 that says that God God sits in heaven and he does what he pleases. There's no competition. God, this, This God sits on his throne and he does whatever he wants. His plans and purposes will prevail. He's sovereign. So look in verse 11. The four living creatures refer to God as our Lord and God. Our Lord and God. Remember, that's exactly what the Roman Emperor Domitian wanted these Christians to say about him. John tackles it head on. He says, no, no. There's one Lord and God. One God only. It's not the Roman Emperor. It's not anyone or anything else. It's the God who created all things, sustains all things, and rules over all things. He is our Lord and God. Fifth, uh, God is distant. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, there are three different pictures that communicate this idea that God is other or kind of distant or separate. Uh, first, there's the lightning and the thunder. You see it there in Exodus uh, 19, uh, this great moment when God gathers his people to Mount Sinai. Uh, in verse 16, uh, we read, On the morning of the third day, uh, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Like thunder and lightning. These are common things when God is appearing uh, to his people. Why? But, well, because in an age before they had terrifying powers like, say, a machine gun or, or a nuclear weapon, one of the most powerful uh, demonstrations of God's power was a thunderstorm. Like, how do you put into words the awesome power of God? Well, a thunderstorm. That's a pretty powerful demonstration. What's the point? The point is that this God isn't safe. This is not a God that you can just casually kind of waltz into his presence as if he's just me. For example, if you wanted to come see me, you could just approach me directly. I wouldn't have kind of myriads of angels all around me that you had to check in with. If you want to go and see Malcolm Turnbull, you don't just waltz into his presence. There's lots of people you have to go through. If you want to come into the presence of this God, he's distant. It's not a casual thing. You don't just waltz into his presence, you see. Thunder and lightning, that's the point. There's a massive gulf between this God and us. And then there's those seven blazing lamps, which which represent, we looked at this in the seven churches, but this is the, the fullness of God's spirit. Now, on one level, isn't it, the spirit is about how close God is to us. Isn't it? It's through uh, uh, when you become a Christian, uh, God comes to live in you by the power of his spirit. That, that's pretty close. But of course, the New Testament also says that the spirit is really just a deposit of our full inheritance. 
It's like an appetizer of the full banquet we're going to enjoy. So in having the Spirit, yes, we're close to God, but we also long for more. There's a sense of of distance from God, that, that, that we're not satisfied yet. So once again, this communicates this idea that we're distant from God. Third, uh, there's the sea of glass there. Uh, Now, in Australia, uh, some of you uh, probably really like the beach. Uh, You're kind of beach-loving people, or at least water-loving people. Uh, That's not the Jews at all. Uh, The Jews really did not like the ocean. Uh, Some of them were fishermen, I get that. Uh, But mostly uh, in Jewish apocalyptic, the sea uh, almost always is a symbol of chaos, of sin, of evil, of people in rebellion against God. Uh, So when you read uh, the vision of the new creation in Revelation 21, one of the important things that John says is there was no more sea. And you're like, but I like the sea. His point is that there's no sin or evil or rebellion, you see. So that's the point of the picture here, uh, is that there's this kind of foaming sea around God's throne. Imagine it's stirred up by the thunderstorm, and the light of God's glory is bouncing off the surface of the sea, and John says it's like crystal. But all this symbolises the fact that because of our sin, we are distant from God. There's There's a massive ocean of sin and evil and rebellion between us. That's the picture. Because God is holy. Verse 8, the four living creatures sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, to say that God is holy, it's a, it's a bit tricky to get our head around. What exactly do we mean by that? Is it just to say that God is pure, kind of morally? Well, sort of, but I don't think these creatures are saying kind of pure, pure, pure. Like the, Is it that he's separate? Well, yes. But that's just part of his holiness. To say that God is holy is to say that he alone is God. That's what kind of separates God, that sets him apart. There's only two categories in the universe. There's God and there's everything and everyone else. That's what makes God holy. It's his godness. It's the fact that he is God alone. That's what sets him apart. God is holy. He is the only God. This God. So there are six reasons for why the living creatures, the elders are worshipping God, why you should worship this God. Now, as I started, uh, actually none of us do that. Now, if you're a Christian, of course you do that sometimes, but we we don't do this consistently, do we? Uh, Even at the best of times, uh, we live, I think, as if the universe revolves around us and our throne, not around God and his throne. We expect things to, to sort out for us, to, to be neatly around our desires and our plans. When we're under pressure, that kind of sinful tendency only gets worse, really. That's the heart of our sin. It's our desire to have ourselves on the throne, to rule our own lives, to worship ourselves rather than God. And if you look again at Revelation 4, you'll be reminded that because of that sin, we're distant from God massive ocean of sin between us deserving of the thunder and lightning of his judgment how dare we come into the presence of this majestic and holy god i say how's that possible well there's another attribute of god i haven't mentioned is it it's only kind of hinted at in this passage but look in verse three look at verse three john says a rainbow shone around like an emerald 
that, that shone like an emerald encircled God's throne. Now, I want to, like, where else in the Bible do we see a rainbow? You can call out even if you like. Noah, Noah right. Also in the midst of the thunder and lightning of God's judgment, right? God's righteous judgments raining down in a, in a thunderstorm, and yet there's this rainbow. At the end of the story of Noah, of Noah the, the moment when God promises that, that he will show patience and mercy and compassion and grace uh, to sinners like you and me. Right? And the ultimate act of God's mercy, of course, is seen in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, being willing to exchange his glorious throne for a shameful cross, his crown of glory for a crown of thorns. Right? Doing that so that people like us can be forgiven of our sins, so that that ocean of, of evil and rebellion that comes between us can be bridged. So we can join this multitude of people who are worshipping God as he deserves that we're going to see again in Revelation 5 and again in Revelation 7 and again in Revelation 21. And I say that's an act of mercy of God because that's what he created us to do. He created us to worship him. He knows that it's only when we're doing that that we really live, that we thrive, that we experience true freedom in life. So in his mercy, he brings us into this people who, who worship him as he deserves and that we live in tune with who we're created to be, in tune, you see, with the very, the very heart of reality. The very fabric of the universe has been pulled open in this chapter, and at the heart of reality is worship, worship of this God who sits on his throne. Our God is on his throne, uh, so let's worship him. Let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. Uh, We thank you for this majestic picture of you sitting on your throne. Uh, Help us uh, to tremble before this vision, uh, to treat you with appropriate reverence and awe as uh, the only true God, the only holy God. Uh, Help us to be blown away afresh by your incredible mercy that we see pictured here, just hinted at in the rainbow that you would show mercy and grace to sinners like us, that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, would give up his glorious throne to to embrace a shameful cross in our place, that that ocean of sin would be bridged and that we could be in your presence and join this multitude of people who are worshipping you and declaring your praises. Father, please impress these truths on our hearts afresh, even as we sing these songs and as we respond in prayer. For Jesus' glory, I pray. Amen.